Father, this is your word that we are about to open. We're about to feast from the bread of life. Nourish us, Lord, with truth. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to not only hear the word of God, but to heed it, to apply it into our lives. Lord, that we might not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers. Father, I do pray that if there is any person under the sound of my voice, whether here in person or um, joining us online, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, there would bend their knee to a sovereign God and embrace the good gift of salvation that's available only through a redemptive relationship with King Jesus. And for those of us who know you today, speak to us, Lord. Help us to respond by faith. In Jesus' name. If you agree with me in prayer, would you say amen? I heard a story once about a pastor who had a major problem. And his major problem was a sweet tooth. Has anybody ever had a problem with a little sweet tooth? Have a thing? Well, that was this pastor's problem. He finally decided it was time to go to the doctor. So he went to his strict diet. And he warned him, if you don't lay off those donuts, those pastries... Those pound cakes, Miss Linda. You're not going to last very long. Well, that caught his attention. He had never heard anything that serious before, so he decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay off sweets, and he did a great job with it. But his one Achilles heel, as far as sweets go, even though he loved pastries and he loved pound cakes, his Achilles heel was hot and ready donuts from the Krispy Kreme. He had a hard time saying no to hot and ready. And the problem was... On his way to church, he passed right by the Krispy Kreme every time. By the way, this story is not about me, all right? <laughs> Though I pass by it on my way every day. But he would pass by it, and he just, no matter what, he could not resist going in and getting a, a box of just plain glazed donuts. But he had decided, I'm going to follow the doctor's orders because I want to live a long life. I want to be there for my family. So for a couple of weeks, he did a great job. But the way he combated his temptation issues when it came to Krispy Kreme hot and ready donuts was he decided he would change his route. He would not drive that way. He'd go a different route altogether. He went way out of the way, about 10 minutes out of his way, just so that he didn't have to pass by Krispy Kreme so that it wouldn't be a temptation. He did so good. And everybody at his church was so supportive. They told him, Pastor, we're so proud of you. You're doing such a great job. You've not come in carrying a box of donuts in over two weeks now. That's great. And things were great until one Sunday. He came in carrying a box of hot and ready, Krispy Kreme, a, a, a dozen glazed. Can't you just smell them? He came in carrying them. Well, the ladies' Sunday school class saw him coming in, and they immediately started to chastise him because whom those we love, we also chasten. So they began to, to chasten him. Pastor, you were doing so good. You, you had been in here week after week without a donut. You, you were doing such a good job. What happened this morning? He said, here's the thing, ladies. This box of a dozen glazed donuts from Krispy Kreme was the Lord's will for my life. And... and one of the ladies said, how do you know that this was the Lord's will for your life? He said, well, I was driving to church this morning, and, and before I realized it, I had the sermon on my mind, and I forgot to go the opposite way, the different route that I had been taking, and, and I was going to pass right by that Krispy Kreme 
place. So I decided right before I got to it, I would pray. And my prayer would be, I will know it's your will if there's a parking place right up front. And ladies, I'll have you to know, by the eighth time I circled around, there was a parking place right up front. Well, that's probably not the best way to determine the will of God, is it? Not a very wise way to do it for certain. But how we can know God's will for our lives is through His Word. God has revealed His will for your life and for mine through His Word. And that's what we've been studying, starting last week, a, a sermon series on Sunday mornings through the, the, ser- the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And in this series, what we're learning is, what is God's will for our life? How we live. How are we to act and interact? What, are, what should our attitudes be? What is God's will that my attitude would be? And that's what we're learning in this series of messages. And we're, 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 over the next few weeks, we're, we're going to keep circling around the Beatitudes, 12 verses, and, and, and we're going to pull right up and, and feast for a while on the bread of life. And as we mentioned last Sunday, there's, there's one reoccurring word that you're going to hear again this morning that we talked about last week. We'll hear for the next several weeks. They're going to continue throughout the duration of this series, and it's simply this, blessed. Blessed. Isn't it good that God desires that we were blessed? That, that God desires to bless us? He delights in blessing His people. He wants us to live. Did you know, lean in for a moment, you don't have to be miserable. That you can be blessed. That you can be happy. And this sermon series, in this Beatitudes, we learn how to do just that. And, and we were reminded that while the Old Testament, it ends with a curse, the gospel ministry of Jesus begins with this word, blessed. Blessed. And as it relates to, to deity dwelling among creation, as it relates to our Lord communicating with His people, I can't help but think about the radical change that takes place between the old and, and the gospel ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. I want you to think about this for a moment, and then we're going to move into our text. When God's people gathered at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, God came down, but His face was not seen. You Remember this? Fire and smoke covered the mountain. It was an ominous sight. The voice of God, the Bible describes it, was like a, a thunder. The scene was so awe-inspiring, even terrifying, that even Moses, the, the leader of the Israelites, he trembled with fear. According to Hebrews chapter 12, the people begged that no further words would be spoken. Yet here, God descends on skin, dwells among His people. We see His face, and He bids His people to come unto Him. At Mount Sinai, God comes down to the mountain in, in terrifying splendor, and the people are kept at a distance. But here our Lord goes up onto the mountain. He sits down. He's surrounded by His disciples speaking words of life and blessing. Who wouldn't want to pull up a chair and listen to that sermon? This sermon on the mount. That's what we're doing here in this series. We're leaning in verse by verse to Jesus' instruction to His people, and that includes us. On, on how we're to live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And as he began the Sermon on the Mount, as we learned last week, he started in a very interesting way. He said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, you might hear those words, and it seems a little bit backwards. Blessed and poor seem to be a contradiction in our minds to one another. 
It, it seems to be opposite ends of the spectrum, an oxymoron, if you will. You might even read a passage like that and, and you grow frustrated by it and say, this just doesn't make, this doesn't make sense, but it's vital that we remember that when we're, we're, we're speaking and considering the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, or, or anywhere else, Jesus doesn't speak to us in difficult riddles for us to solve or complex codes for us to crack. Jesus speaks with wonderful clarity and, and a grace-filled simplicity that's within the grasp of even a child. That's what Jesus says. We come to him with a childlike faith simple i say we as in i tend to complicate that which is supposed to be simple that's the case with the beatitudes blessing comes through acknowledging here in the text we looked at last week that that life happens when we recognize our spiritual poverty how bankrupt we are before god it comes to recognizing how utterly dependent we are upon him for our salvation for our strength for our sustenance for everything Without me, Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? You can do nothing. We're utterly dependent upon him. And blessing comes when we realize that. When we acknowledge that and, and stop trying in our own strength to live. And stop trying in our own strength to, to have wisdom and, and, and to make sense out of this world. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor, spiritual poverty. We realize that we're not enough. But he is. He is. And we can trust him. That's what, that's what spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit, is all about. Think of it this way. When Annette and I married and we started our family, we were very young. And early on in our marriage with, with one baby and a, a limited income to boot and plenty of financial irresponsibility on both of our parts, we were poor. And I said that exactly how I meant to say it. We were poor. We couldn't even afford the O and the R at the end. And I remember, I'm going to date myself a little with this, but I remember when I got my first ATM card. I never had an ATM card. This is when those things first came in. I was so excited about that. And I remember going to the gas station to use it for the first time, and I made sure that there was an audience behind me when I was at the ATM machine, and I was going to get 20 bucks out for some gas, and I ran that thing, and I made sure everybody was looking because I had a card. And it had one big thing across the screen for all of the people behind me to see. Insufficient funds. <laughs> I could have crawled under that ATM machine. I was so embarrassed. I'm sure I called Annette and fussed at her about that. But it's, it's what happened. That's, that's how it is spiritually. There's insufficient funds. My works are not enough. My words are not enough. My charitable giving is not enough. My church attendance is not enough. In and of myself, I'm not enough. But thanks be to God, He's enough. And when I trust Him to be for me what I could not be for myself, there's blessing in that. Blessed are those who, those, those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, now listen very carefully, and this, this, is, this is important. Really what we're looking at here is going to be a, a prerequisite for getting the rest of the Beatitudes. As we begin to read these Beatitudes, we need to understand New Testament proverbs that are unconnected from one another. That are disjointed, that are just randomly thrown there. No, no, the Beatitudes are written in a particular order, very purposefully. One builds upon the other. There's a reason that realizing our spiritual bankruptcy, our spiritual poverty is first. If blessed are the pure in heart was first, we'd never get there. 
You have to start with the spiritual poverty. So these are written in a particular order. Spurgeon said it this way. C.H. Spurgeon said, A ladder, if it be of any use to us, must have its first step near the ground. That's how we'd review these Beatitudes. It's a ladder. And, and the first step is right where the law leaves us, on the ground. Spiritually bankrupt before God. Uh, certainly unable to climb to any heights in and of our own strength. And reaching that place is a blessing because it's when we acknowledge our insufficiency and only when we acknowledge our in insufficiency that we really begin to look at the sufficient one for help. The second beatitude springs from the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Say that with me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, the clarification of mourning. The clarification of mourning. If you mark in your Bibles, underline the word mourn. Underline the word mourn that's found there. The Greek language that the New Testament is, is written in originally is a very beautiful language. But it's a very complex language. And I say that it's complex because Greeks used several different words to express something that can be understood maybe in one English word. An example that most would be familiar with was the English word love. There are multiple Greek words that are used for the word love. You're familiar with this, most of you. There, there's the word phileo, and this is a brotherly love. This is the love friends have for one another. There's the word for love that the Greeks use, eros, and that, that word describes a love uh, that's shared between a husband and a wife. There, there's an intimacy with that love. There's the word agape. That, that's the word that God has for his people. He loves us with an agape love. And when these words were spoken, this, this beatitude that we're looking at today, when they were recorded, there are nine different Greek. Each one of them means something slightly different. So there were options here. The word that is used here, as Jesus speaks, as Matthew records this sermon, the word that is used for, for mourning here in this text expresses the most intense sorrow imaginable. It's the strongest word for, for sorrow in the entirety of the Greek vocabulary. This word conveys a, a profound sadness. The kind of sadness that a, a person feels when they're mourning or grieving the loss of someone that they love. In just a few minutes, I'll head to a, a former church and I'll be sharing uh, some words at a funeral service, trying to bring some comfort to a family who, who feel mourning as described here. When that earthly bond has been broken, it's been severed, and, and even though we know, even though we know this is not the end, it hurts, doesn't it? That's mourning. That's the word that's used here in this text. So, so this is profound sadness. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Again, that seems kind of like a contradiction, doesn't it? Happy are those who are intensely sad. That's what we read. How do we make sense out of that? So if you're taking notes, we also see the cause of mourning. We see the clarification. This is intense sadness. What's the cause of intense sadness that leads to joy? 
Now remember, these Beatitudes, again, are not disjointed statements, one being independent from another. They're connected. The second builds upon the first. They're, they're to be seen in a progressive order. We must see them together. So again, in Matthew 5, 3 and 4, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, rolling into blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what does that mean for us in context? What it means for us in context is we look at it as, as a whole here in this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's simply this. While it's true that those who mourn loss here, physical life on this earth, while it's true that they will be comforted by the Holy Spirit, by the promises of God's Word, by, by other believers, that's true. Aren't you glad that He offers comfort for the brokenhearted? Those who are experiencing grief over a lost loved one? Yes, yes, that's true. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it's not what he is talking about here. Not, not in its context. Look with me at, at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. In verses seven, 8 through 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me, let me explain first. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. It's, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. These people were living in rebellion. They were giving lip service to God's word. They were openly and proudly strutting in their sin. So Paul called them out on it in this first letter. They were a hot mess. And Paul addressed that. He, he, he chastised them. And he did so very sternly. And then listen what he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said to him in his second letter. He said, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle, same letter, made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. The Apostle Paul in the second letter writes back to the Corinthians and, and says this, that letter I wrote you was rough, wasn't it? And, and while I was writing it, I felt bad about it. But the more I've thought about it, the happier I am that I actually wrote it. Because as you read it and it broke your heart, that was actually a good thing. As you read that letter and it, it grieved you, that was actually a good thing. Because it caused you to look deeply into your lives and into your sin. It caused, it brought about change and repentance. Godly sorrow, it produces repentance. That change is what leads to redemption. Please understand, a lost person cannot and will not come to God on their own. It won't happen. Some might push back and say, well, I know a person who's not a believer, but they've made some positive changes in their life. They've, they've turned over a new leaf. Listen, change that lasts eternally is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about getting a brand new life. And that only happens through salvation in Jesus Christ. That brand new life can't happen without us acknowledging sin and spiritual poverty being broken over it. There is sorrow that comes over personal sin. There should be a mourning attached to our personal sin. Earlier this week, Kendall Ann and I, my daughter, she, she was driving to work and I was riding with her and we were coming around the corner and everything looked good in her windshield until we come around the corner and the sun came in. And when the sun hit the windshield, every bug, piece of dirt, grime, all show up. Have you ever had that happen to you? And we couldn't see out of the window. Kendall said she could see fine. She was, 
it was not that bad, according to her. I couldn't see anything, and I'm a little extra, so I, I got into it. How the human soul operates. When, when a person is not in Christ, they, cannot, they, they will not be able to see this sin that's in their life. It's, they're just impervious to it. They, they don't even notice it. It's just, it's just not there. They, they think they can live as though they, whatever way they want to live and do as they want to do. But then when they encounter the power of our living God, the light of His Word, when it permeates the windows of their heart, the radiant glow of being in God's presence and His glory, it begins to reveal the grime in ways that we've never seen it before. It's only then that a person will come into salvation, redemptive relationship with Jesus. And I want to preach to the church just for a moment. Mourning over sin is not just for the lost. It's not just for those who don't know the Lord. We too must mourn over our sin if we expect and hope to live in blessing. And I'm going to get real with you here just for a moment. And I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to absolutely anyone else in the room, maybe even more so. Here's my great concern for the church today. My great concern is, uh, is its abundance of unshed tears. That's what I would say. Is we're just not broken over our sin. Years ago, you could not enter a church without a mourning bench being there. A place where God's people would come and cry out to God over their sin. You just don't see that anymore. But why? I think there are a couple of reasons, and I won't spend much time here, but I think one reason is there's a diluted definition of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. I think we've bought into that lie from Satan. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus says this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, to take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? We've embraced a diluted definition of what it means to follow Christ. We're to be changed. We're to live differently. We're to think differently. We're to speak differently. Our life is not my own. I've been bought with a price purchased by His blood. I, I'm, I don't belong to me. The things that I allow to come into my ears and my eyes and my mind, it's different. The things that we embrace in our church, it's different. But we've embraced a diluted definition of what Christianity is actually looked like. I, and, and in turn, uh, 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, Let everyone... Who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Flee from sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Flee from sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till, till, we're, till we're broken over sin, Christ will not be sweet. Let me share one more thing and I'm going to move on. I, I, I think there's an abundance of unshed tears because of the fact that we're just not living as near to the Lord as we should. I'll make a confession to you. One of the surefire ways that I can know whether or not I'm walking with the Lord, I'm near to the Lord, is how easily I see the sin in my own life. Let me say that I see everybody else's pretty easily. But when it comes to my own, how easily I see it and how it affects me, whether or not it breaks my heart, it tells me a lot about my own walk with the Lord. If it doesn't really bother me, 
It tells me a lot about my own walk with the Lord that happens when we're near to him. David, think about it. King David had hidden and hid, suppressed his sin. But when his sin was seen in the light of God's glory, remember what David said, against you and you alone, oh God, I've sinned. When Peter was confronted with the presence of the Lord after denying his Lord three times, he exclaimed in his presence, Don't come near me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. In the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah entered the temple, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe, filling that place. His initial and immediate response, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man with unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's impossible for us to truly live near to the Lord and not be broken over our own sin. Peter, David, Isaiah, they mourned over their sin because they had been in God's presence. And that sin had been exposed as a result. So we too must mourn over our sin. And that mourning will not come unless we're living near to the Lord. But it's not only mourning over our own sins, also mourning over the sins of others. Again, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 21, he says, When I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I will mourn. For many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanliness, the fornication, the lewdness in which they have practiced. Paul's saying, I expect when I get there, I'll be brokenhearted. When I, when I arrive at the church in Corinth, I expect that I will mourn. Why? Their sin. Remember what he did? He wept. He wept as he looked out over Jerusalem. Why? Sin. Sin. He, he saw their indifference and he knew the judgment. That was coming upon them because of it. I'm afraid that instead of mourning over the lost condition of this world, the sin of this world, instead we've justified sinful practices in the name of tolerance. I'm afraid of instead of mourning over the lost sinful condition of our world, we've affirmed sinful practices in the name of love. I'm afraid that instead of mourning over the sins of this world, we've acquiesced to sinful practices because of quote-unquote unity and getting along. Dear saints, may our hearts be broken by the things that breaks our Savior's heart. May we mourn over our own sin first. Jesus addressed this, did he not? He said, look, you're really focused on sawdust in, in his eye. you got a beam coming out of yours. It's ours first, but please understand, Jesus doesn't say the sawdust doesn't matter. We have a responsibility with that sawdust, too. We have to, we have to make sure our, our, our grass is cut before we work on our neighbors. We need to mourn over our sin. Now, why? And we're wrapping up. Notice the comfort that's found in mourning. So there's some clarification here. To mourn is to truly be brokenhearted. The, the reason that we're to mourn as believers is because of sin in our own lives and the lives of those we love. We know the ramifications. We know the consequences. We're broken over those things. What comfort is there for mourning, though? Matthew 5, 4, again, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When, when Jesus says that the mourner will be comforted, please understand that he's not talking about a pat on the head. He's not talking about a motivational speech that might inspire us and make us feel a little bit better, cheer us up a little. If you mark in your Bibles, underline comforted. The Greek word that's used here, parakaleo, 
Perikaleo, and it literally means come alongside. Blessed are those who are brokenhearted over the sins that are exposed in their own life and the sin that is in this world that is separating men from God. Blessed are those who, who mourn in that way. Here's the blessing. Jesus will come alongside you. Jesus will come alongside you. When we acknowledge our, our bankruptcy before God, we admit that our sins are there and be broken by them. Our Lord's joy and life and abundance and contentment. That's what he does. Years before Jesus was born to a virgin in Bethlehem's manger, the prophet Isaiah spoke about what the Redeemer would do when he got here. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 61, 2 and 3. This is a messianic prophecy. He would come to comfort all of those who mourn. He'd come alongside those who are hurting. He would console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. Gladness instead of mourning. He would clothe them with garments of praise instead of a spirit to do for all of those who mourn today over the sin in their own life and the sin in the life of others. He stands ready to come alongside us. I'm reminded of James chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. Listen to it very carefully in light of what we've learned today. Draw near to the Lord, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Isn't that a promise? He will come alongside us. So here's our question, and we're done. Do you need to be saved? Have you seen your sin today clearly in the light of God's glory? As we've opened the word of God, maybe the, that's keeping me from God. That's keeping me from heaven, and there's nothing that I could do in and of myself. I realize I'm bankrupt before Him. I couldn't stand before God. Nothing about me would commend me to Him. I've done nothing to, to earn my way into heaven. I, I deserve the exact opposite. I'm bankrupt before Him. And I see today, for the first time maybe, I see today that my sin, my sin, has caused a gap between me and God that I could never cross in and of myself. I'm bankrupt before Him. And maybe today that sin is causing you to mourn because you realize it was that sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Friend, if that's you, either in person or online, can I say, Jesus stands ready to come alongside you. And to give you exactly what you need. He's ready to save. He stands at the door, the Bible says, and he knocks. If any man opens that door, he'll come in, sup with him, he with you for all of eternity. He stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick it in. He knocks. There's the invitation. Would you open the door today? I acknowledge my sinfulness and my inability to make things right. Do for me what I can't do for myself. Save me. He'll do just that. Maybe today you, you are a believer, but if we're being honest, you, you couldn't say in this moment that you're really broken over the own, your sin in your life. Apathy, indifference, whatever it might be, it bothers you a little bit, but you wouldn't categorize that as mourning or grieving over. W would you pray today and, and ask God to break your heart for what breaks His? 
or maybe today in the light of God's glorious word, some grime on the windshield has been revealed. And, and you've taken note of some things that are in your life. Man, they're not pretty. They're, they're sinful. And you're broken over it right now. Can I say that he stands ready to come alongside you too? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen? Would you bow with me? We're going to sing together and worship this great God who stands ready to comfort us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, as we prepare our hearts to respond to the Word of God, understand that your response may be at an altar. Maybe right there at your seat. The place is not significant as the actual doing. Would by faith you say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you ask. I'll submit myself to you. If that's for salvation, save me. For surrenderance, help me. Help, help us to mourn that we might be comforted. Father, in Jesus' name, we don't manipulate moments like this. We simply ask that you'd give us faith to respond in obedience to the work that you're doing in our lives, whether that means at an altar, whether that means at a pew, whether that means just living life differently when we leave this place. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.